in him we have forgiveness, in him we have acceptance, in him we have regeneration and reconciliation, in him we are made new creations. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made in order to make us your children. And so we ask now, Lord, that as your children, we appeal to you as our loving Father to minister to our hearts this morning, to teach us, to change us, to convict us. Help us, Lord, to see how you change the game and how you, in changing the game, have made a way for us to cry out, Abba, Father. So commit ourselves to you now. Please help me to speak clearly, to speak slowly, and to articulate your word to your people this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 9, we have this really awesome passage that stems on from what we spoke about last week. And it's focusing more on the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle and and, and what's been going on. And so what's going to happen is this morning, I'm going to look at the first two passages, and they're foundational. They're foundational because I want to communicate to you just the seriousness of how God views things. And it's evident by what's spoken about. See, the first five verses of Hebrews chapter 9, we read this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. Something I need to actually make mention of right here, right now, is that the writer of Hebrews, in this passage, he lists what furniture is within the tabernacle. He makes mention that in the most holy place, or some translations call it the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, in which was the the jar of manna, the staff of Aaron that had budded, and the Ten Commandments, the the stone tablets that held the Ten Commandments. And then in this passage, he actually says that the altar of incense was there as well. But if you look at the Old Testament, and if you look at what's actually spoken about in the layout of the tabernacle, the altar of incense is not in the most holy place. It is not in the Holy of Holies. It is actually in the holy place. So what happened was, and we'll have a look at this now. I don't know if I put it up there, but I did. So this is taken from the book of Exodus, this particular passage. You see the altar of incense is actually on the, just in front of the veil, which is right before the holy of holies or the most holy place. That's actually significant. Okay? I just want to actually establish that there. Why the author does that, I'm not completely sure. But it does actually refer to something which I think is really interesting. See, this is the author explaining the earthly tabernacle. The tabernacle where you had the lampstand and you had the table of showbread and you had the altar of incense. That was in the, mo- the holy place. The writer refers to the altar of incense being in the holy of holies, I think for a couple of reasons. One, the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant represents how he involved himself with his people, that he dwelt amongst his people. That's what happened with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, which has above it the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where the presence of God dwelt. 
What does the altar of incense represent? The altar of incense represents the prayers of his people, the prayers and praise of his people. That's what the altar of incense actually does. And if you look in Leviticus chapter 1, chapter 2, and I think also in chapter 4, there's a reoccurring phrase that talks about this. It talks about an aroma pleasing to the Lord. That when a sacrifice was given, there would be an aroma pleasing to the Lord. That when a bull was sacrificed and it was burnt, there would be an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because this aroma that wafts up to the very nostrils of God represented the praise, represented the prayers, represented the very hearts of the people as going up to the very presence of God himself. That's what the altar of incense represented. And I think that's the reason why the author puts those two things together. Now, 17 times in the book of Leviticus, it's actually referred to in regards to an aroma pleasing to the Lord, which got me thinking, and I was talking with Carissa about this last week. Why was that pleasing to the Lord? Why was the sacrifice of an animal, why was the sacrifice of uh, or doing certain things in a particular way, why was the ritual, why were those things pleasing to the Lord? Why? Because it was an action, it was a ceremony, it was a ritual that was performed in faith. Their obedience was stemmed from faith. Their obedience was motivated by faith. They understood that believing God resulted in the appropriate action. Did you ever wonder why, when Cain and Abel offered a sacrifice to the Lord, why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected? I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, it was because one was given in the right attitude or anything like that. I look at it a bit more pragmatically in the fact that Abel offered what God was asking for. Abel offered a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. What did Cain give? Cain gave fruit and veg. That's not how, as we learn today, how sins are atoned for. Essentially, Cain was coming on his own terms, saying to God, I'm going to offer what I want to offer. I'm going to offer how I'm going to offer. I'm going to approach you how I think I should approach you. And the reason why Cain was rejected is because he didn't believe that he should follow God's plan. God's desire. You can't come to God on your own terms. That's impractical. You go to a judge and you walk up to any judge in court and you would get hammered. You would get knocked back. The bailiff would jump on you. What are you doing, young fella? You can't do that. Why? Because you want to approach a judge, the judge's way. You want to approach the president, the president's way. You want to approach the queen, the queen's way. You don't get to call the shots on how you approach God. And this is the whole reason why, when we look at this here, what God had actually instituted was a means by which he could be approached. But it was on his terms, not your own. And that applies with us, even now. So you have this tabernacle, you have this temple. Within this, you had a number of pieces of furniture. What did the tabernacle represent? The tabernacle represents God dwelling with his people both in the past and in the future, as a unified whole. The tabernacle foreshadowed what was later accomplished in Jesus Christ. Where was the tabernacle located in the nation of Israel when they went traveling from Egypt over to Mount Sinai and wherever it was? Where did the tabernacle remain? It remained in the center of the people. And what was really interesting is when the people surrounded the tabernacle, they had to have the front doors of their tents, of their houses, facing the very presence of God, respective 
not respective, but basically explaining, saying, I'm in the center where I can be accessed. I am right here. So the first thing you see when you wake up is my presence. The last thing you see when you, when you go back to bed, when you go back to the retreat for the evening, my presence. God is a God that dwells amongst his people back then, which is a picture of how he dwells amongst his people right now. It hasn't changed. We know this. Hebrews 13 tells us this, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God that dwells amongst his people. That, that's what the tabernacle is. Within the tabernacle, you have six pieces. The first one, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant <clears throat> law was placed in the most holy place, called the Holy of Holies. Its top, which was overlaid with pure gold, was called the Atonement Cover. That's in the Exodus 25, 17. It's also called the mercy seat in other translations. The ark symbolized the throne of God, the great king who dwelled amongst his people, 1 Samuel 4, 4 and 2 Samuel 6, 2. It signified God's holiness and, and was the place where he met with the representative of his people, the high priest, on the basis of atonement. Now, Inside those things, like I said, inside the ark were three things. There was a jar of manna, which represented the very provision of God, God's, God's provision for his people. There was the staff of Aaron that budded, which represented the authority or rule of God, his appointment. And then you had the Ten Commandments, which represented the holiness of God, his law. Those things were continual reminders for his people, that when they saw the Ark of the Covenant, they saw his provision, they saw his authority, and they saw his holiness. That was represented in the Ark. Next to the Ark, or not next to the Ark, but in the, in the, in the next thing was a table of showbread. This stood on the, on the side of the holy place, and was, on it was placed the bread of the presence of God. That signified God's presence among his people. And it was usually unleavened bread. Uh, Twelve loaves of bread, one loaf representing each of the tribe. The bread was set out every Sabbath day on behalf of the Israelites, and that was in Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 8. You have the golden lampstand. It's up there, yep. The golden lampstand. That stood on the other side, across from the table of showbread, and its candles burned every night. It burned all night. It's, it may have symbolized the eyes of the Lord that ranged throughout the earth like a lampstand in Zechariah's vision of Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 to 10. The altar of incense, like I said, which represents the prayer and praise of his people that stood between the veil, which was massive. The veil was huge and it was thick. And that separated the altar of incense from the Ark of the Covenant. The only person that could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, was the high priest. Now, I know a couple of weeks ago, Actually, several weeks ago, Pastor Ben came and shared about, the, the, about us being priests. Yes, we are. We are priests. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 makes reference to that. We are a royal priesthood. And as priests, we have the opportunity to represent God to the people and the people to God. What made the high priest significant is that they were the only person, the only person to go into the very presence of God. There was no one else allowed to. But they could only enter the very presence of God after they had made a sacrifice for their own sin. Then they could walk in there. So they had to do a sacrifice for themselves, then enter the presence of God, and then present the blood on the mercy seat on behalf of the people. 
So that's what the altar of incense was, uh, represented the prayers of the people. Then you had the altar of burnt offerings, the altar of burnt offerings, which was uh, also bronze. It was located in the courtyard. On it were offered the twice daily burnt offerings and drink offerings, showing that only through blood could God meet with his people. That's in uh, Leviticus 29, verses 38 to 42. Uh, the court basin, that was done for ceremonial washings, etc., etc. And then as you read through Leviticus, you have what's known as the oil for the lamps and the priests' garments and all that sort of stuff. Now, all of this detail, all of this description, all of this instruction is God presenting the seriousness with which he views his relationship with his people. This is, I mean, this is some pretty complex stuff. You've got to jump through some hoops to get there. But if this is something that you really cherish and understand, you wouldn't have an issue doing it. I have seen guys do some amazing things because they like a girl. I'm not saying they're trying to manipulate the girl or anything like that, but because of their love for their one and only, they will do things. They will give things up. You might play sport five days a week. You meet a girl and you're like, man, I'm going to give up four nights a week so I can spend four nights a week with my girl. You'll give that up. There was something that Chris shared. I didn't ask Chris for his permission. And, and is this okay? Uh, we, we were invited to sit up with the marriage preparation people. Uh, and, and we, were, we got to sort of give some input. You know, what is it about being married? All that sort of stuff. What's your view? And, and Carissa and John, who did a great job, said, what's one bit of advice? Or what's one thing that you realize now being married that you think about, wow, I didn't realize that would happen? And Chris gave a brilliant one. Chris said this. He says, once you get into marriage, you realize that your time, your resources, everything you have is no longer your own. <laughs> and he was like, but here's what's cool. You don't mind. You don't mind. And that's why it makes Chris such a great husband. (laughs) Because of your love for your wife, you'll give those things up. You'll give those things up. And you don't have an issue about that at the start. (laughs) Here is the same principle. The, The regards what God is expressing is like this. This is what's required for me to have a relationship with you. There is a wall that separates us. There's a wall that prevents us from being in in constant communion and constant interaction and fellowship with each other. And this is how it is dealt with. The tabernacle that I've provided, whether it be the altar of bronze offerings, the bronze laver, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the ark of the covenant. And, And when you read through the scriptures, you see the complexity of what needs to be offered in order to have a relationship with who God is back in the Old Testament. That is intense. And that's what's explained in the first five verses. That's what the author is trying to get across to these people in in the Hebrew church. This is serious. This is serious. That's why when you read in the next few verses, and from verses 10, sorry, from verses 6 to 10, we read about the priest's role in all this. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. Sorry, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Sorry. The Holy Spirit 
was shown by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now, in verses 6 to 10 is an explanation of the ritual and ceremony of the priest and high priest within the tabernacle. Their duty, responsibility, and service. The complexities of their ministry as priests is recorded in the book of Leviticus. And once again, I encourage you to read the book of Leviticus. It is a book that looks at sacrifices, offerings, feasts, festivals, holy days, ceremonial washings, the sprinkling of blood, the regularity and repetition of the sacrifices. And as pedantic as every step may be, it references the serious view that cost God dearly. There is a price for this relationship. It's the cost of God's holy character, the demands that sin has. That's what's involved. When you read through these things and you read of these complexities, you have to understand this main thing. God does not view sin lightly. God doesn't view sin lightly. We have, the, we have this thing where we view it and we just brush it to the side. That's not so with God. You read, and I, I looked at this in Leviticus chapter 4, and I just took out some things. This, this is what the high priest had to do. This is for the sin offering of the priests, right? The Lord said to Moses, this is what the priest must do. He must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering. That's in verse 3. He is to present the bull at, at the entrance of the tent of the meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. The priest shall take some of the bull's blood, carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord. Verses 5 and 6. Verse 7, the priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The bull's blood he shall pour out on the base of the altar of the burnt offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I've just taken bits out of this. There's still heaps more. He shall remove all the fat from the bull in the sin offering, uh, both kidneys, removing all the fat. And they're carrying on. The fat's removed from the ox. The hide is cooked. All that. You read all of this. All of this is for one aspect of our lives. This is the sin offering that the priests need to go through to present an offering or forgiveness or an atonement for their sin. Then they've got to go through the whole ritual for presenting an atonement for the sins of the people. A number of months ago, John Menzies came and he shared, and he went through Leviticus. And the, the point he was trying to get across as he shared with us, is the same point I want us to communicate us today, is that there is a lot involved there is a lot involved in regards to having a relationship with God. There is a lot involved in regards to the giving of sacrifices, the way the sacrifices are given, how many times you're supposed to give these sacrifices. There is a lot in it, and it's because God views sin in such a serious way. God views relationship in such a serious way. That's why there are so many complexities in regards to it. This is why you can't come on your own terms. This is why you can't think, I'm just going to do this, and God will accept me. No, because if in the Old Testament they had to go through all of this for one aspect— What makes you think you know what's best and how you get to approach God? You don't. You don't. That's the reason why God had to lay out everything specifically for his people to know and to understand. 
And in all of that, realize that it's not just a ceremony. Because I look at the Pharisees in the New Testament who were doing all of this, and yet they were the furthest away from God. Why? Because the whole understanding of why you're doing it counts. The whole reason why you're holding to this counts. That you're doing it because you want to know who God is and you want, to, you want to deal with this whole issue of the obstacle that's blocking you from an intimate friendship with him. That's how God saw it. And that's why he did what he did. All of this is just one offering. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus, we are given the details of numerous offerings regarding different things. As a matter of fact, at the end of Leviticus chapter 7, we read this. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave to Moses at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord. The gravity of the situation is the complexity of what's required. This is the reason why in Galatians, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, he says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that shall he reap. If a man sows to his flesh, he shall reap what? Corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he reaps life. God is not mocked. Now, this is where we see how much greater Jesus is to anything that preceded him. See, these are the foundational realities. I, I wanted you to understand what God required from his people in order to have a relationship with him. Do you get that? Like, I would encourage you to read through this, read through Exodus, read through Numbers, and you see, for example, I remember reading one passage, I believe it was in Numbers. Oh, no, it was Exodus, I think. And it was just how many bulls the priest had to sacrifice. I think it was like for a day, there was two bulls. Then there were sacrifices for the week. Then there were sacrifices for the month. And then you had a list of what could be sacrificed at those particular times. And I'm thinking, that is intense. Those priests must have been working 24-7 just to stay and atone. And then they have to redo it the very next day and the very next week and the very next month and the very next year. And, 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 you see, and it just accumulates. It accumulates the amount of, of resources that would be involved in, in doing this. So what we have now in the very next verse, which I think kicks off the best the best statement in this whole passage. If you look in chapter 9, verse 11, the verse begins with these four words. But when Christ came. So you've got all of these things established. He talks about this is what is required for your sin. This is what is required for a relationship with God. This is what is required to have a clear conscience before God. The priests, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to sacrifice. This is how many times you need to sacrifice. All through this old covenant that we've been looking through in the book of Hebrews, the Levitical priesthood, Joshua's rest, the prophets, the angels, all of those things, Moses, we've been looking at. Then he hits us with these four words, but when Christ... Christ came. But when Jesus showed up, that's when he comes in. This statement is the doorway through which we are now to view everything we have as the church of Jesus Christ. Everything that he has brought about, everything that has taken place, it is the truth 
of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says these two words, but God, who is rich in mercy and his great love wherewith he loved us. It is the same principle of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is that same thing. It is the reality of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak things of this world to bring to nothing the things that are. Right here in these four words, we see God's direct involvement that it is viewed in the larger that everything that they do, everything that they experience, everything that they encountered are now, is now viewed in the larger context of, uh, context of who Jesus Christ is. Mel, can I borrow your glasses, please? Thank you. I'm not going to put them on because I've got a fat head. I'll, I'll stretch them. So basically what the thing is this. What we are now doing when we see this but when Christ came is that now we view everything through a new lens. That is terrible. Your eyesight is terrible. <laughs> But we now, we now view everything through this lens of Jesus Christ. We view the, the covenants of the Old Testament, we see now through the lens of Jesus Christ, which now makes sense. We see all the types of how Jesus is a picture of the ark, how, how the picture of the ark is a picture of Jesus, how the, the, the festivals and, and the sacrifices are a picture of Jesus, how, how we see all these events that took place are pictures of Jesus. Why? Because you view all of that through this lens of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's what we're now doing, because I'm hurting my eyes. I'll give those back. Thank you so much. But that's what the view is now. Everything, our context that, that we now view things is to be viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's what puts everything in context now. That's what makes sense of everything. Because as you read from here, what we read is this. As you read in verse 11, sorry, we see him come as high priest. We, we see him come as the Lamb of God. We see that it was him as high priest and him alone. He was able to enter the veil and stand before the very presence of God and appeal on our behalf for our forgiveness to God himself. That's what happened with the high priest. That is what happened with the person of Jesus Christ. The picture that is represented, we read, is this. But when Christ came as the high priest, the good things that are already here, pardon me, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not as part of this creation. See, he, he changes the whole aspect of it. Where we had the picture of the tabernacle before of how the high priest is to approach, we have Jesus Christ in a tabernacle not made with human hands who goes into the very presence of God himself and is there interceding, there pleading. That's what happened when Christ came. But when Christ came, we carry on reading in verse 12. I don't know why I put that. But the blood of goats and bulls and ashes they have sprinkled. I don't know why I put that there. I'm sorry about that. There we go. That he did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outward clean. This is the difference between Christ's blood and what he shed to the blood of bulls and goats. They could only ever provide a temporary reprieve 
they could only ever do something on a limited basis, that when the blood of an animal was shed to make atonement for our sin, that's the reason why they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. That's what the scriptures teach. I was listening to a Rabbi Zachariah sermon many years ago, and he talked about, it's, it's fascinating how people understand atonement. How when Rabbi Zacharias was in India and he saw an animal slaughtered and he said, why are they doing this? And this Hindu man said, it's, to, it's, to, it's a price to pay for the wrongdoings that we've done. And Zacharias has traveled all over the world and he has seen the same theme go all about, about reconciliation, about retribution, and about the need for a sacrifice. And this is all evident, the fact here, that Christ himself, on his own blood, on his own merit, which is far better than the sacrifices. That's what happened when Christ came. When Christ came, it says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our, consciousness, our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. That's what happened when Christ came. When Christ came, we carry on reading, we as a mediator of a new covenant that those who are already called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. When Christ came, there is a will that is in force. Only when somebody has died, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. When Christ came, oh, that's something else. But when Christ came, for these Hebrews, there was the comfort of the familiar. For these Hebrews, it was the comfort of tradition. For the, for the Hebrews, it was the comfort of the regular. And, and you know this. You know this. You fall into your routines. You, you do this. But when Christ came, what happened was is that he, he opened their eyes to see himself. He opened their eyes to see what Jesus was doing and continuing to do. That's what Jesus brought about. When Christ came, he made all the difference. This is why when you speak to any Jewish person that's become a Christian, they will explain to you, actually talk with Uncle Fred, talk with Uncle Fred, and, and he'll be able to explain to you the whole idea of, sorry, I didn't, I didn't ask Uncle Fred's information there, I didn't, permission there either, but talk with Uncle Fred, and even Pastor John, in regards looking at the rituals of the Old Testament, and Uncle Fred and Pastor John will be able to show you in their rituals, whether it be the Passover, why when they, when they do uh, the Passover, they use unleavened bread that's, that, that's, that's, got, that's striped and has holes in it. Why do they use that? A Jewish person won't know. A Jewish person won't know. Why? Because Christ has not yet come to them. Why when they put it in a bag, why, put it, why the bag has three compartments in it? They, the, you know, a Jewish person won't know because Christ has not yet come. Why they take one, bag, one piece of bread, wrap it up, and go hide it for all the kids, for all the kids to go find it. And when they find it, they break it up, and everybody takes a piece of that one piece of bread. Just that one piece that was taken out, hidden, buried, and then brought out to light again. Why does that happen? The Jewish people won't know. Why? Because Christ has not yet come. So I encourage you. This is why when you look through the scriptures, the, the Hebrews didn't see this until Christ had come. And so when you and I have the opportunity to read through the scriptures, we can see this. We can see this. We can understand it. Why? Because Christ has come and enlightened us. It's like one of these pictures. You know what this is? This is a magic 3D eye picture. It's one of those stupid 3D pictures that if you look at it in a certain way, a picture pops out, a 3D image pops out, and you have to look at it really weirdly. Like, I, 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 I've, I've done this 
so many times, like, I know what it says. I know what it says. But with a lot of people, this is what we're like. For a lot of non-Christians, this is what it's like. You stare at it, and you stare at it, and you stare at it. What do you see? What you see is nothing. But what is there? What is there? I guarantee you, there are two words there. There are two words there. If anyone can see the two words, I'll say congratulations. It's too fast. No, no, I can still see it now. You've got you to look at it slightly cross-eyed, and you've got to look at it out of focus. It's really, really weird. Um, have a look on the actual computer later, but it does actually work. I've, I've, I've used it, and I've done it. But here's, here's the point I'm trying to get across. When Christ came, he brings it to light. What the, what, what's in that actual picture? And it pops out these 3D words that look like they're floating in front of the picture. It says, the game. That's what it says. It says, the game. And I'm telling you today that when Christ comes, he changes the game. He changes it. He is the ultimate game changer. He is the one that brought to light everything else. I had one, was it? I think it was, no, it wasn't Jolene. I had one young girl when I did this at, at uh, Borkham Hills High School. I had one young girl, and she stared at it, and she stared at it, and she stared at it, and she started crying. It was really funny. And then, and then at the end of it, then all of a sudden, she's like, I guess I think I see something. Then all of a sudden, her eyes just lit up, and she's like, I can see it. I can see it. And this is what happens when Christ comes. Practically speaking or applicationally speaking, the same principle applies to every context you and I are in right now. Every context. As a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, as an uncle, as an aunt, as a grandparent, as a friend, as an employee, as an employer, as, as in, in every situation that you might encounter, you view it through that particular viewpoint of when Christ comes, he makes the difference. He makes the difference. You want to know why Romans 8.28 is such a promise to claim? You want to know why that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purposes? You know why? Because Christ has come. He makes the difference. You've got a struggle you're going through right now. Jesus wants to come into that struggle. He wants to come into that struggle, and he wants to make the change. You've got something you're wrestling with and a sin that you need to overcome? Well, then you allow Christ to come in. Because when he comes, he changes the game. You've got a relationship that's soured by, a, by, by somebody else within the church? Then you allow Christ to come in. You allow Christ to come in, and you allow him to have his way in your life, and he changes the game. You, you want to know what you can do regarding sharing your faith with other people? Allow Christ to come in. Because when Christ comes, he changes the game. He's done it from the beginning of creation. Because what happens when Adam sins in Genesis? God wants to come in. He wants to come in. He wants to take care of it. He wants to change the game, and he does. He institutes a way in which sin can be dealt with. You read all throughout the Old Testament. You see where God has come in to change the game. You read through the New Testament where Jesus Christ himself comes in to change the game. What happens with Matthew in Matthew chapter 9 when he's sitting there? Jesus Christ came and changed the game for him. What happened with Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he's on his way to Damascus on the road straight? You know what happened? Christ came and he changed the game. What happened to you when you lived a life of sin, living your own way, doing your own things, thinking you know better what God knows? You know what happened? Christ came and he changed your game. He came in and he brought you into a relationship with himself.
Why? Because he's about changing the game. Jesus Christ is not about making, what's that? I like to, I said it before and I love it. He is not about making bad people good. He is about making dead people alive. He changes the game. He's not here just to make you morally better. He wants to make you brand new. That's what he wants to do. Because Jesus Christ is about changing the game. And that's the challenge that you and I have to, have to not only deal with, but submit to. I was talking with John and Chris last night, and they were sharing with me about a guy named Bob Goff. Was that the, Bob Goff? And sharing about some of his stories. And, and I, think, I think this is one of the greatest things that you should try. Um, not exactly the way Bob Goff does, but basically when God would impress something upon his heart, you know what he would do? He'd go, okay, and then do it. I think we'd get a lot more done as the church of Jesus Christ. Is that when, the, when, when Jesus convicts us of something, or Jesus challenges us with something, instead of justifying it in our minds, we go, okay, and do it. See, when Christ came, that's what it was all about. Changing the game, enabling you to be able to do it. It's not no Nike commercial, okay? I'm just, I'm just saying, maybe we should just do that. You have something in front of you. You might have a disagreement with your wife. And he says, I really need to apologize and ask for my wife's forgiveness. Well, okay, do it. There's somebody next door that you haven't shared Jesus with, or a, a workmate, or anything like that. And you sit there and justify, I'm ready for the word opportunity. I'm ready for this, that, and the other. And ha, ah, just do it. I, I still think Pastor Roger, actually Pastor Roger's coming to preach next week. Um, and he's got some stuff he wants to share with us. But I remember Pastor Roger, when he was challenged by Maulene, he got approached by Maulene College, who said, we would love for you to come out to our college and share with the kids about church growth. About church growth. And he goes, okay. You know what Pastor Roger's lecture consisted of? Save souls. That was it. You want your church to grow? Save souls. You want your church to grow? Share the gospel. You want your church to grow? Get out there and do it. And I'm thinking, yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Now, here's the situation. In all the people you have in your life, the way Christ comes to them is through you. You're the feet. You're the hands. You're the mouth of Jesus Christ in order to reach out and tell them about himself. And I think that's an awesome privilege. That is an awesome honor. That Christ comes through you. And that's what I want you to, to, to leave you with this morning. That we've we, we seen the extent in which God has gone to to make us his child. We have seen the extent of what needs to be going through for the Old Testament how they had to enter a certain way. They had to wash certain ways. They had to sacrifice certain things and certain times, so many times over. But when Christ came, he gave us direct access to the Father. When Christ came and died on a cross to take upon himself your guilt and my guilt, your sin and my sin, and that through trust in him, we, be, we are made brand new. We are made new creations in Christ. We are forgiven of our sin. We become new people. That all of that stuff is done away with, that the better has come, the better has come and changed the game, allowing us this wonderful privilege to gather here like this before our God, before our Father, and just cry out to Him and praise and honor Him with our very fiber, with our every being. That's amazing. This is what we've been given in Christ. 
this is what has happened. And, and, and I implore you, allow Christ to come in and make you new. Allow Christ to come in and change you. Allow Christ to come into the situation and restore. Allow Christ to come into to every event and reconcile. And Christ desires to come in and change the game. So my encouragement to you today, brothers and sisters, as we read through Hebrews chapter 9 and see the complexities of sin, the seriousness with which God views it, that we might be thankful and grateful and appreciative of what Christ has done in our lives so that that is done away with. So that is, is now a joint relationship with our Father. So, I would like you to be upstanding. Um, as the worship team come up, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has come. We thank you that the game has been changed because you are directly involved with the lives of your people. We thank you for the gift of salvation that is given to us in Jesus Christ and that he has done away with all the old in order to implement the new. That he and his sacrifice has cleansed us of our sin. That he and his sacrifice has cleansed us of our guilt. And that through faith in him, we are made new creations. We thank you that we are called the sons and daughters of God. We thank you for the, the manner of love that is bestowed upon us. We thank you that you've torn the veil in two and that we have direct access to you now as father and as friend. So we ask now, Lord, that as we go from here, we might understand each of our contexts, each of our situations, and see them through the light of who you are, and to understand that you are here to not only change the game, but to change us. So we ask now, Lord, that we'll submit to your will, to your desire, and your heart, so that we might represent accurately the greatness of who you are to those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
wonderful Savior, you have brought me near. You pulled me from the ashes, you have broken every curse. Blessed Redeemer, you have set this captive free. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I can't help but sing. Faithful you are. Faithful forever you will be. Faithful you are. And all your promises are yes and amen. My confidence is your faithfulness, and I will rest in your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness, and I will rest in your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, saints, Grace Christian Church, now it is God who makes us both to stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We would love to pray for you this morning. (laughs) My gum. Now we